BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Last fall, my eldest son, Louis, started college at NYU during the pandemic. As a parent, I had a ton of questions, like how schools were making safety decisions, of course, but also how would they justify their high price tags for what was essentially Zoom classes? Those are the questions that Carmen Twilly Ambar has been grappling with for the past year. She's the president of Oberlin College, a small liberal arts school in Ohio, well-known for its music conservatory and for its progressive student body. Welcome to Sway, Carmen. Glad to be here. So I want to start our conversation by going back to March of last year. Wow. Uh, when Kosar, remember that? Remember March? <laughs> I do. I do. I remember March. It was a, it was a challenging time. Yeah, absolutely. When COVID-19 first started uh, to seriously spread across the U.S. during the time my son was gearing up to start college for the upcoming fall. And we were all thinking about the safety of it. By March 12th, you announced that students would not be returning back to campus after spring break and that the remainder of the semester would be conducted online. Can you take us through that decision? I remember that moment so vividly because it's probably one of the most difficult decisions I've had to make in my professional career. So I came in on that morning. I called an emergency meeting of our two deans, dean of the conservatory, the arts and sciences, our chief of staff. And I literally walked in. It was probably 7.30, 8 in the morning. And I walked in and I said, hey, guys, I think we're going to have to shut this down. What had convinced you? Was it reports? It was a series of things. It was the public health reports that started to demonstrate that they weren't clear about how this virus spread. And remember, college campuses have this congregate setting framework that make it complicated to think about how you prevent the spread. And it became clearer and clearer that uh, we did not have the ability and the knowledge to prevent a widespread outbreak on a college campus. Mm-hmm. Is there something you saw that you were like, like we can't? Well, I think that was shortly after the NBA um, announced its suspension. Uh, so that certainly, you know, it's just another piece of the puzzle. We had already had on our campus, not a scare, but we, you know, we are, we are a campus that has students from all over the world. Um, so we had started to think about this issue early on because we have a segment of our students from China. And so they had come back in January. Some of our students from China were already wearing masks on campus, although at the time that was not something that we knew was going to be necessary. And so it just became clearer and clearer that it would be really difficult for us to prevent a widespread outbreak. And so you came in that morning. I came in that morning. I said, guys, I think we're going to have to shut this down. We sent an email out to students and faculty that said that tomorrow is the last day of classes. And then saying that in two and a half days, they would all have to be off campus. Wow. So were most students upset by the decision when you made this? I Honestly, I think that what mostly people felt was that Oberlin, the president, leadership is putting the health and public safety 
above everything. That is the first and primary goal. And they respected that decision. They may have disagreed with aspects of it or wish we could do it a different way, but they did respect that value and understood that that's what we were trying to accomplish. And so I don't remember the pushback strongly. I'll just say this one thing that was so difficult. So two students came to see me as we closed down campus and they came to see me that Friday. So the next day, they had tears in their eyes and they they asked me, is there any other way you can do this? Do you have to close down campus? Uh, and I said, I, I don't think there's any other way. And they were seniors. And so they said to me, remember, you get a chance to come back, but we don't. And that was the moment that I sort of just fast forwarded through all of the traditions, all of the athletics, commencement, that all of those things would be different and that we were altering their college experience in the most profound way that one could possibly alter it. So what did you say? So I said to them that here's what I want you to think about, that whenever you're facing a really challenging situation, you have to look for the seed of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And this will transform you. And you have to ask, what can you learn from this transformative moment in your life? I tried that with my son, you know, with especially because he had a senior prom, et cetera. And I was trying to be like, well, many people have it harder. That's one way to go, which I think is sort of the guilt kind of, and yeah. it's correct. <laughs> um, and the other was, you know, this is an opportunity and you can learn something here. And he said, you know, mom, I, well, here's what I've learned. This sucks. And I was like, I was like, <laughs> and that is accurate. That is an accurate assessment. Um, but you also happen to be located in a state where the governor actually took it seriously versus. Listen, I think that Governor DeWine um, has been an example of how you, from the state level, help each segment do its job well. And, you know, there were moments through this where I would say to our team, we're alone in this. But it wasn't because the governor wasn't doing what he should do, but because we didn't have a national testing framework and some things that we really needed on the college campus, we had to be willing to find our own solution. And that's the difference between a national strategy that everybody is it's a part of, and a 50-state strategy where everyone has to sort of find their own way. So going into fall semester of 2020, you decided to reopen the campus and implement a three-semester schedule for academic year. Effectively, you're rotating students on the campus based on their year in yeah. school. Can you explain that system and how you ultimately landed on it? Right. So our students said to us, after health and safety as your primary goal, we want you to try to find a way for the on-campus in-person experience to happen for as many students as possible. So for us, the three-semester plan was about ensuring that for every student, because, you know, some colleges have had cohorts off, but they've done it fully online, like the juniors are away, but they're just in an online framework. Our system allows for everybody to have two semesters on-campus in-person. Three classes are there. Right. So the fall, we had seniors, First years, sophomores, juniors were away. Um, this spring, we have first years, seniors, and juniors. And then juniors and sophomores will be here in the summer. So so the idea is you, you flip, and then September, you're hoping to get everybody back together. Is that correct? 
Well, as we say in the South, Lord willing, the creek don't rise. Um, you know, <laughs> the creek always rises. <laughs> the creek is always rising. Always but rising. May, but maybe it won't rise so My much. My grandma so. used to say that, and I was like, the creek always rises. <laughs> so, you know, I we, we we really need, like everyone, we need the, the vaccine to, right. to make its way to college students uh, so we can get back to a two-semester framework. Is that the plan you have right now? That's what we're working towards. We've applied to be a point of distribution for the vaccine so that we can effectively vaccinate our campus. We'll have to do it in the order that the state dictates. But the goal is, if we can, to get the entire campus back, everyone vaccinated. So how many COVID-positive cases did you expect to encounter going into school year? Because you have to expect that. And what did you do? Gosh, when we started out, we had some of the folks say to us that we should expect 10 to 15 percent positivity when our students showed up. Uh, so we were planning on, oh, we might need to have 150 to 200 quarantine spots. We were really there. And when we showed up on campus that first time and it was less than 1%, I think it was something like 0.25, uh, we were all just elated. But I will say that our students showed up. If you walk on our campus right now, you will see everyone masked. And one of the great things that happened in our town was that the city council said to me, that there was such adherence by our students that it encouraged the rest of the town to be more adherent to their mask wearing. There's always sort of town and gown push and pull in every major college town I've ever encountered. Was there a worry about that with getting infected by your students? Uh, That happened across the country, this idea. Yeah, I think it was across the country, and I think Oberlin was no different. And remember, as we're coming back to school, Oberlin doesn't come back to late, late August and September. And so there were other colleges that were already back. There were outbreaks, um, decisions to close colleges down shortly after students got there. So people were watching it across the country. And so there was concern in the town about having 2,200 or so students because we had you know, a cohort off showing up on campus and what that might mean for the community. That was one of the reasons why we said to the Oberlin community, to the town, we will put the data up. Oberlin is a pretty small school for people who don't know. It has about 3,000 students total. Um, How does it, when you think about your experience compared to larger schools? Well, I think we were able to do some things that larger schools found more complicated. So first, we could put in a really comprehensive testing strategy. Um, Now, that helped because Oberlin has a strong endowment and a financial framework that allowed that. So we were testing 25% of our population every week. That allowed us to get a real snapshot. Uh, We could provide masks for everyone. We could put in an infrastructure that could do contact tracing. So we could put in some strategies that could help us mitigate against a widespread outbreak on campus that was really complicated for larger institutions. I also think that the smaller community creates a kind of connection to each other that maybe it's easier to know your neighbor and to be dedicated to not only your own health and safety, but your neighbor's health and safety. And I think that a president of a campus for 3,000 students may have more influence and ability to encourage that collective action than it may be for a president with 20,000 students. That required cancellation of sports and other campus events. So people were upset about sports cancellations. Specifically, there was a petition to bring them back. How did you answer these various things? So this was all about balancing risk. And the risk in athletics, by its very nature, it asks you to do various things that uh, the CDC would recommend you not do. Right. Be in close contact with right. each other. Breathe on each other. Uh, yeah. Breathe on each other. Travel. All those things. 
And so what we said is, is that risk worth uh, what it might mean to have an outbreak on campus? And what we determined was that particular risk wasn't worth it. What we discovered over time is that we could create, I don't like to use the word bubble because we know how COVID is. I knock on wood every time I say that. But we did create a framework where we didn't have an outbreak on campus. The real challenge with athletics, frankly, is um, the travel component, going to other campuses, engaging with other communities, and then the, the effort itself. So that's what it required. And that was the only one of the only areas where you couldn't duplicate competition, right? So in our conservatory, we had to make all sorts of changes too. Like there was no public performances, right? Here are these students here coming for this profession. They cannot perform for an audience. But we could do some things different for those students. Created a whole sort of digital platform. So people could see it. They record their work. Yeah, there were things that we could do. Athletics, we couldn't duplicate competition. Right. There's not a cello off or something. There's not a cello off. <laughs> There's not. There would Although, be. There should no be. No, in Oberlin, See, we will, should... you know, now that you said that, I you bet you next year there'll be a cello off. You know what? If I ran college campuses, there would be. There'd be a cello off, the violinist. <laughs> you know what? But, you know, that's going to require you to name that with a donation, right? <laughs> Carrie switch your cello off. No. I would... <laughs> no, I would, it would make money from the ticket sales. Oh, that um, we're doing? Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. That's right. I'm, I'm a business-minded person. So um, also partying, same thing. You had very strict enforcement of social distancing. We did. So we asked every student to sign a community agreement. And that community agreement indicated that you couldn't have gatherings. It was pretty strict. And, um, you know, the first semester... In the first few weeks, uh, we had to send about 15 students away. And so they had to be not only off campus, but essentially at least 50 miles away. So they went home because they violated the community agreement. Do they get to come back? They get to come back the next term. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the vaccine campaign program that includes vaccine distribution centers. Will you be requiring proof of vaccination in the future? How do you look at something like that? Well, it's interesting. So we did do that for the flu shot. So this year we required all students to get the flu shot and they had to provide proof of the flu shot. Um, You know, it'll be a little bit different with the vaccine because it has emergency authorization and not sort of complete authorization. So we'll likely be in the strongly encouraged framework. But we, for example, with our faculty and staff, did a survey to ask how many of you would be willing to get COVID vaccine? And it was something like 85% of our faculty and staff said, absolutely. And so it just gave us confidence that our community is going to be willing to be vaccinated. Um, so do you think some of it will stick? Let's start with the positive parts of it. The teleeducation, remote learning. It does bring into question, do I need to be on a campus? Yeah, I think some aspects of it will stick. Uh, remember, though, Carol, we were marching towards some of these things already in higher education, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, these are accelerating trends. These that are we're accelerating having. trends, right? right? Accelerating trends. So we're all now more open to what it means to be in flipped classrooms and hybrid models in online frameworks. I think that we've all learned a lot there. I think the other thing that will stick are conversations about our calendars and how they work. Um, how we use our campuses in the summer. Does it mean that you can only start college at places like Oberlin in September, right? You know, what does it mean to have block 
type schedules? Because, you know, a lot of colleges decided to truncate it. So you were taking two courses over seven weeks as opposed to four courses. Uh, So I think some of those things will stick. I think that curricularly, so, you know, the conservatory is interesting, right? I mean, try to do orchestras and voice in a pandemic. (laughs) That That is hard to do. Uh, so we create these low latency classrooms so that you can be playing the viola in one room and the piano player in another room. That type of stuff is going to stick. We're going to figure out a way to have more people experience Opalin, even though they may be in Rome. And I think some of those things will drive innovation and creativity on college campus in ways that will be really positive. And so what we have to do in this sector is to embrace the innovation. Uh, and I think we've been hesitant to do that um, because, you know, the truth of the matter is that colleges are some of the oldest institutions in the country. And we can be rather conservative, um, despite people's views of us as liberal leaning. <laughs> in terms of our desire to change ourselves, we can be really conservative. Yeah, I don't think anyone's surprised by that. I have to say <laughs> colleges. Yeah. Well, we're, we're built in a way that, you know, takes us a long time to get to a different model. Speaking of that, a lot of liberal arts colleges are really struggling. Now, the financial strain of the pandemic has impacted the ability of students to afford education. Um, have you changed your tuition costs at all? So I don't, we haven't changed our tuition costs, although we have clarified, you know, how we provide need-based aid. So remember, Oberlin is one of these places that meets full need. We, we happen to be blessed to be able to do that for our students. Uh, and so you know, when you look at our sticker price, what you're really seeing is that most students are paying between thirty-five and forty thousand dollars, not seventy thousand dollars. So it's seventy-five thousand dollars, or seven, almost seventy-six thousand dollars. Yeah. So you know, I think that uh, that's really been the focus of our institution to make sure it's accessible. But it is an industry challenge. And I think places like Oberlin have a little bit more, you know, protection because of our endowment and other things, but. Uh, if you want to, if you want to see gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands, get a group of college presidents together and ask them about our prices, and <laughs> it just creates this, you know, instantaneous. Oh my goodness, because we know that this accessibility question is a value that most of us share, and our costs have not matched up with family income. Right now, but then you've implemented some cost-saving measures during the pandemic, like salary cuts, and you canceled some programs. Why is the price of tuition the same now? Is that the, these costs aren't going away, or what is? If you had to explain, like a parent, like why am I paying all this? Well, what I would say to parents is that um, what you are investing in is a high-cost model. So the model means, just like in K through twelve, that you value a classroom with only ten kids as opposed to a classroom with thirty kids. This model ensures that. You also are investing in the full student life experience. So for us, everybody was on campus, so that value didn't change. And the challenge for all of us is how do we make that transformational experience more accessible to more students? Well, which would be lower costs. I mean, you know, I I was just saying people that think it's not worth it, obviously you've heard Peter Thiel go on about this, don't even go to college. Like, And Scott Galloway, who's at NYU, and he's been a vocal critic of rising tuition. He compared Harvard, I think he goes more at Harvard than you you guys, but um, it's a very expensive streaming service. That's what he calls it, like Netflix. And that's a joke, of course, but are you worried that remote learning and and the thought that is this worth it be a threat to the financial well-being of institutions like Oberlin? I mean, you don't, Harvard, you have a very large uh, amount of money that you can rely on, but Harvard, of course, could could buy and sell France at this point. Well, I call those students the nation states, right? Nation I mean, states. <laughs> yeah. You do? 
<laughs> yeah, because we have Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, you know, the multi-billion dollar endowments. But I would put, obviously, Oberlin's not in that category, but I do think we're in the category of, of institutions that are not as concerned about this challenge as some institutions that have really small endowment and are hugely tuition dependent. But listen, every sector, and higher ed is no different, has to be concerned about people's perceptions of our value and whether the investment is worth it. Mm-hmm. And the return on investment, right. And the return on investment. And and listen, I, I've been in higher education for 20 plus years and I do a lot of admissions events just because I think it's important for the president to be there. 15 years ago, parents were not asking us about ROI. They literally asked that question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what's my return on investment for this experience? So you never got that ROI. question. Yeah, yeah. Never got an ROI, but now you are. Never. Now you get it all the time. I mean, literally, that is a normal question at an admissions event. So parents are asking you, why is this investment worth it? Here's what we have to demonstrate. We have to demonstrate that the academic experience is obviously worth it, what they're getting outside the classroom. We also have to demonstrate that what their life after Oberlin is like. And are we doing a good enough job to prepare them for the variety of opportunities and experiences that they envision after Oberlin? And let me just say, it's beyond careers. But it's also about preparing your soul, frankly, preparing you for change, for uh, the resilience to solve complicated issues. And that's what happens on a liberal arts college campus. I mean, we're about all those pieces. Yeah, that's about the priceless. Priceless. Right. You can't you can't put a price on it, which is, I think, a good argument for you to make in front of parents. But you do have parents going ROI. What, where's the, yeah. Do you need to provide them data that it's worth the investment now? Do you find that offensive? I don't find it offensive. I mean, you know, what I've said to people about this all along is that we can't be resistant to demonstrating our value. You know, we talk about placement and what happens to students in particular industries, it's right for parents to ask us that question. And if we are offended by it, it's to our peril that we're not willing to say, here's the value. But one of the things that's hard, though, is that a lot of higher education institutions are struggling financially and had been even before COVID, as we discussed, and declining enrollment is part of that problem. Mm-hmm. Now, you have a, a you are a little bit of a nation state. You have a $1.05 billion uh, endowment. Is that correct? A small nation. A small no. nation. <laughs> what nation would you be? You withdrew, you know, an estimated $31.2 million from that last year, which is was what the endowment's for. What is, is that your survival plan, the endowment uh, versus tuition and other revenue? No, I just think we have the ability to be able to tap our endowment for an emergency. That's what it's for. But we we are, you know, colleges and, and institutions have a business aspect. As I say to our faculty and staff all the time, we've got to make our business model work. And so, you know, our revenues have to be stronger than our expenses. So for us, that's about mainly tuition dollars um, and then also having a cost structure that matches up. And we happen to be blessed by an endowment that could help us out in this instance. But I don't think the strongest institutions are relying on their endowment to solve operational challenges. Now, speaking of tuition, a lot of which you're relying on, obviously, a lot of kids don't pay the sticker price for college except for Kara Swisher. Um, <laughs> there's a significant economy in financial aid, both need-based and merit-based aid. And it means many students are shopping around and buying their degrees on sale, essentially, a discount. Is merit aid a way to bring in wealthier students who other schools may be competing for? And why isn't that money, say, right now at Oberlin, for example, um, Oberlin's almost 700-strong freshman class, 270 students, almost 40% of the class, were not awarded need-based aid, but got this merit-based aid um, and received $17,000 on average. Why isn't the money going to more 
low-income students or the tuition just being dropped? Like, yeah. what, what, how do you think about that merit-based aid? How I think about that. So, you know, I think it's, it's one of these natural tensions that I think exists in all of our sort of financial model, which is how do you have access and opportunity, right? Handing out financial aid to need-based students. How do you generate revenue? How do you have the revenue to provide the academic experience that all students want and that add value. Um, but it certainly is true that we're trying to balance our revenue and our and our expenditures. And merit aid is a piece of that balance. Um, I wouldn't describe it as out of whack, at least not here at Oberlin, but it is part of the how this financial model works. Would you eliminate merit-based scholarships? Do you is it something that I mean other colleges, Hamilton, Franklin and Marshall, and Franklin Marshall's endowment is less than yours. Right. Um, to focus more on financial aid for need-based students, or do you feel like you're serving those? I think we're serving our, our students well. You know, Oakland's history is a part of that serving, but I think our commitment to diversity and inclusion is is well documented. I mean, we are we will be spending time in the future thinking about kind of through the presidential initiative that we launched after the George Floyd uh, murder, how we do better in diversity across all ranks of the institution. And I think, remember that one of the things that's a little bit different about Oberlin is that we're kind of an outsized in terms of number, small liberal arts college, right? So most of our peers are 1,800, 1,200. Um, we happen to be closer to 3,000. That makes our model a little bit different. You know, this idea of artificial constraints on supply, why not make it bigger, either through remote learning and, and put your investment money there where you bring more people in. Do you see that happening? Because the idea of, you know, the, the colleges are proud of their rates of non-admission. It's really quite, I've never seen any, like we aren't letting anybody in, like lucky us. I know. It, 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 is, it is one of the aspects of our sector that, that concerns me. You know, I, I jokingly said on a panel one time, it's hard to, to sort of be proud of how many people you reject. Uh, I, I do think that as colleges imagine what the future will be, and this is in part care too about what the sector ultimately looks like, meaning how many institutions make it through this COVID era and what the demand will be. I think there will be some pressures to think about what expansion looks like. Uh, you know, I said early on when I got here to Oberlin, um, doesn't Oberlin education mean the only way to get it is to show up in Oberlin, Ohio? And so I do think it's worth thinking about what it might mean. And I do think that COVID will force us all. If you ask me the main thing that's come out of COVID in terms of our thinking, I think the sector is valuing flexibility, nimbleness, and innovation more than it ever has. And yet we all value this residential experience. Certainly, certainly. But I think one of the things that people like Peter Thiel and others get mileage on is the high price and the limiting factor, this sort of artificial limiting factor where they could say, what do you need that for? Right. And if you, if, if it expanded and it didn't cost that much, there's a great argument for lots of, and, and by the way, that's been the history of this country is people that didn't have money get to these amazing education, especially from public universities. And so it sort of plays in their hands when you're not innovative and you're too pricey and you are exclusive, like not you, but colleges. Yeah, but I totally understand. But the question is, you know, can you create the value of the experience by yeah. being 30,000 people? Well, maybe some get it and some don't, right? And some get it and some don't. So the question is, how much are you willing to play in that space where some get it and some don't? We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, hit subscribe 
you'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with economist Raj Chetty, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Carmen Twilly Ambar after the break. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hardfork. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. I'm going to finish up talking about diversity and culture and how to get more diverse schools. Oberlin has a rich history of this and a rich and laudable history in this way. Let me just say Oberlin was one of the first colleges to admit black students. There's a history of inclusion in that sense. But right now, less than 6% of the students on your campus are black. Um, What are your targets or goals for increasing diversity on your campus? And think of it in a larger sense. Yeah, you know, it is a conundrum that I think we all face around how do we create access on our campus, you know, because they change the federal standards and people can check two or more. So our numbers for Black students are really more like 10%. But but it, it's still not enough. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not saying that it's enough. You know, this issue of access and opportunity on college campuses, particularly places like Oberlin, these selected places, um, is a conundrum that I think we're all facing. And I don't want Oberlin, I think none of us want our institutions to be a place where um, students show up and it doesn't look like the world. That's not what we want at all. So, you know, for me, this is about how do we create the financial framework to create accessibility? How do we create a campus climate that is supportive and welcoming? And, And that climate is around things like, what does the staff look like? What does the faculty look like? What is the curriculum? Climate is is more than just kind of a feel, but it is a sense of belonging and connection to an institution where you walk in and you feel like you're a part of it. Do you have uh, targets and goal percentages for diversity or what are they? No, we don't have targets right now. We don't sort of think about it in quite that way. Um, what we really have are efforts to try to improve some of our processes in order to ensure that diversity happens, right? So the presidential initiative to me was... Well, to be truthful, it was born out of out of pain, really. Um, you know, after the George Floyd uh, murder happened, and I and I honestly, to be really honest about it, I 
I, I was almost not going to comment on it, as crazy as that sounds in retrospect. Um, for people in the audience that don't know, I'm an African-American woman. And um, and I wasn't going to comment on it, honestly, Kerr, because we were in the midst of COVID. Remember, that's kind of May. We're reshaping the campus. And we were just all exhausted. And, and as a Black woman, I was exhausted of these images and just, I mean, it's like, oh my God, can I take another one of these? And so it was out of that anguish, really, that I said, um, you know, what's Oberlin's part in this? What what role can we play in this, what I hope will be a nationwide effort to rethink ourselves? So out of that initiative, I'm expecting more clarity about eligible students. How can we have more diverse students on campus, both ethnically and, and economically? What does it mean to have a center for race and equity and diversity? You know, I think how we think about diversity in our faculty ranks is going to be important. So, you know, for us, that's about, first of all, you know, the kind of training and support that helps all of us not sort of bring our biases to the table, uh, which we all have, contrary to popular belief sometimes. And then I think the next process is about what does it mean to strengthen our work in our admissions framework, although, you know, we have 27 to 30% students of color on our campus. And so I'm proud of that. But the question is, can we do better? Right. Uh, and can we do better in areas where we have um, not demonstrated as strong results, where I think representation is particularly important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, political views. Oberlin definitely has a reputation for being one of the most progressive schools in the U.S. It's a, it's a meme at this point, you know, the radical activist Oberlin student. But um, would you, are you actively trying to enroll more conservative students, for example? Well, I'll say I, don't, I wouldn't describe it as, as, you know, sort of actively, you know, trying to recruit people from different diverse political perspectives. What I would say is trying to make the climate more open and welcoming to people who have different perspectives. So when I first got to Oberlin, we focused on um, expanding sustained dialogue. So sustained dialogue is a program where students literally practice how to talk to people who have different perspectives and to take these um, lightning rod issues and just practice it, uh, right? And then we expanded it to this program called Bridging the Gap, where we connect with a small Christian college to try to have our students have this experience. And I think that, um, you know, the truth of the matter is that we all need to practice how we listen with the purpose of understanding, not with the purpose of changing people's minds. And the only thing I will say about college students that I think, you know, they sort of gotten a little bit of a bad rap here. Um, it's, it's not like society has done any better, right? Yes, no, you know? no, indeed not. <laughs> and so this notion that let's 18 and 19... Let's focus on college students. Let's focus on these 18 and 19 and 20 and 21-year-olds <laughs> yeah, who are in the development stages in their life and say, boy, you guys are getting it wrong. Yeah. Okay, Congress. Yeah. Okay, family at Thanksgiving. That is a fair <laughs> you know? point. So it's a little bit unfair, and I think this has been a hyper-focus on college students, but... I will say that we are taking it head on at Oberlin. I do believe we have to send students out in the world that have an ability to hear and understand. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it isn't specific to Oberlin at all, by the way. And you're absolutely correct. And there's criticism, that co- this this idea of hotbeds of cancel culture. But at the same time, you have to worry if the colleges are reflecting the real world. Or sometimes it's a good thing. I, I have big issues with this cancel culture ideas. I think sometimes it used to be called accountability. Uh, for If you say offensive things and people are offended, 
how can you be offended that they're offended? You know what I mean? Like it gets into this weird thing. But in one case, it turned, at Oberlin, it turned into a pretty costly lawsuit with students accused a local bakery of racially profiling a black student. The owners of bakery sued the school. You were initially ordered to pay $44 million because it looked like you were supporting this. Um, It was later slashed to $25 million. I, I know you're appealing the case, but how do you in the real world deal with these costly experiences, which might cause you to distance yourself from student activism, which is an important part of Oberlin? Yeah, well, you know, because we're in the midst of litigation, I can't talk about that specific case. But I will say that this discussion that we're having in this country about how we have conversation across difference, right, and how we do it when we have these radically different lived experiences is one of the issues of our day, right? We are living it out right here, right now, through this impeachment trial and all these things that are going on nationally, right? How do we have these conversations? And I think for Opalyn, we are really committed to that space. How do we do that together? Uh, because I, I don't think we're serving our students well if we don't give them that skill set. We don't give them the way to do that. And, you know, because it's important to our democracy, to, I think, what good citizenship is, um, to, I think, what it means to be uh, a great partner, <laughs> to be in your own personal sphere, our ability to hear and listen and understand and appreciate different narratives is um, some critical skills that I think we have to provide to our students. So it's not about conservative or liberal, really. I mean, that's you know, let's make it too simplistic. It's about uh, the nuance of the different lived experiences that I think we all have in this country and how we hear that from the other person. And um, we all find it difficult, frankly, not just college students. Yeah, I, it's interesting. When you do that, I was say, saying something was complex and I got like piled on Twitter. I'm like, it's complex. I'm just not going to back off. But the pile on of everyone had to be, it's this person is this, this person is this, was really fascinating to watch from a sociological perspective. I would love to know as a college president, because you're sort of in the middle of all this, like how do yeah. you, because you want to encourage activism. You want to encourage disagreement, really. Um, and discourse, discourse, right? Discourse, public yeah. square. Yes, right. public square. But the public square is pretty ugly at, at this point. It's sort of, it's, it's sort of degenerate in a way. So I'm going to ask you a question. This, this idea of culture where right versus left, free speech versus hate speech is happening across the U.S. and college campuses. Uh, and college campuses have played a big role in it is what should be said and what should not be said. And something shouldn't, you know, possibly shouldn't be said in some cases. You know, a lot of this is due to the Trump era where the brakes came off in this way. This is when it's really reached the sort of strongest, loudest, noisiest, ugliest part of it. So when you're running the college campus, what is your Trump learning about teaching students this? Right. Gosh. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think that every political sort of transition creates something on a college campus. I mean, it's a lot of college campuses are activist communities in in interesting ways. Um, I think what's been interesting about the Trump era has been the discourse that decides to focus on the personal as opposed to the issue. It begins with the personal, right? It begins with you're stupid, you're, you know, that kind of engagement that doesn't elevate the conversation and the issue, but starts in the personal. And one of the things that I think um, we say on this campus is instead of calling somebody out, how do you call somebody in? And, you know, I think that one of the challenges with social media is that it gives people's license to be more vicious. Um, and it also gives people license to to think that, 
I'm never going to see you. I'm never going to engage with you again. I mean, one of the things I love about our Sustained Dialogue program is it's a series of conversations with the same people. And what that means is that you don't get a chance to be rude and walk out the door and never talk to the person again. You don't get a chance to send them a nasty note and decide that you never have to take responsibility for how that note landed, how those words felt. So the two learnings are, let's don't start with the personal and let's remember that we're going to have to see each other again. So let's have a conversation that's about colleagues as opposed to about people who never have to talk to each other ever again. So after all this, do you have hope? Do you feel like you're hopeful? Oh, gosh, of course. Absolutely. No, no, I mean, it's my natural way of being in the world, but I also think it's backed up by what I see on a college campus. I mean, the beautiful thing about being on a college campus is that college students, um, despite people's view of them as cynics and everything sucks, they believe the world can be different. A protest, a reasonable protest, (laughs) is nothing but an exercise in hope. It is a belief that the world can be different. And so on a college campus, you can't be anything but hopeful because you see these incredible students who you know are going to go out and change the world for good. I actually agree with you. Talking to young people always makes me feel better. Always. They talk Doesn't to my it? son. I yeah. never worry about the future once I... Yeah, you go... These, that's why when people say, oh, in the world, I'm like... I say to our senior staff all the time, whenever you feel kind of down or you know beat down by whatever it is, go out and talk to some students. Mm-hmm. 100%. President Ambar, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And good luck with September. Oh, gosh. It's going to be fun. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. (laughs) All right, bye. Thank you. I appreciate it. Nice meeting you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba El-Urbani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Liriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you on the same devices where you may be attending your very expensive Zoom classes, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening.